Hi, I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir. I'm in New York City with two men who I can't, um, oh, I guess I should say I can't imagine two men I admire more. Uh, one I've known for a long time up close, Danny Meyer, the restaurateur, founder of Union Square Hospitality Group and Union Square Cafe, Gramercy Tavern, Shake Shack. We can't name them all, uh, but Danny's also been a board member of Share Our Strength and active in our No Kid Hungry campaign since just about day one. Uh, and it's great to have you back, Danny. We've had you on Ad Passion and Stir before. Well, with a guest like you have sitting next to me, there's no way I, I wouldn't have. Well, I have to say I'm really excited about having former Senator George Mitchell here. Um, Senator Mitchell, you probably don't know this, but I, I, can, I worked in the Senate for about 13 years, first for Gary Hart from Colorado, who I just saw last Wednesday. I was out in Denver. Uh, and then it was chief of staff to Senator Bob Kerry from Nebraska. So I was there just about the entire time that you were in the Senate. And I not only think of myself as a student of the Senate, I think of myself as a little bit of a, as a student of George Mitchell because I started as Hart's legislative director and I just loved the Senate. And when the Senate, when, when the workday ended, if the Senate was still in session, I'd go up in the gallery and I would just sit there and I would watch you. And your style of leadership is one that probably well, I know at least more than half of the country misses, but it was a time when the Senate, which had its problems and, you know, I remember late night sessions and, you know, roadblocks and difficult times and filibusters, but you had such a uh, rare ability to work with people in a way that actually makes me think Danny of you because Danny's philosophy is always that, you know, in terms of hospitality, it's about how you make people feel. And you had a way senator of making the other side feel like they were part of the process and that they were being heard which in today's politics is almost gone you got to the senate in 1980 i think appointed to fill senator muskie's seat when he became secretary of state and then were you were elected twice in your own right and now you're practicing law here in new york city with dla piper so it's a real real honor to have you on the show well thank you billy and it's a great pleasure for me to be here uh, with danny you worked with uh, Gary Hart and Bob Kerry, two good friends of mine while I was in the Senate, people who made a great contribution to the country. And it was a different era then, different attitudes. I recall very clearly on the day that I was elected majority leader of the Senate, one of the first persons I called was Bob Dole, who was the Republican leader. And I asked if I could go to see him. And of course, he agreed. I walked over to his office and I told him that uh, he'd been there many years. I had only been there a few years, but I had been there long enough to realize that if the two leaders, the Democratic and Republican leaders, typically called the majority and minority leaders, didn't trust each other, the Senate would be impossible to function. I told him, here's how I intend to behave toward you and ask you to behave in the same way toward me. And I set out the most basic principles of fairness, decency, openness. Bob was delighted. We shook hands, and to this moment, never once has a harsh word passed between us, either in public or in private. Well, Danny, you know, when, when you and I are together, we probably spend at least half of our time talking about politics and talking about government and how to make things work better. And I know you've actually, you've often thought about why can't there be a, almost like a bipartisan ticket that runs, the, you know, in terms of a presidential campaign. Is such a thing possible? Is that a fantasy? Is, is, and I guess one of the questions that I 
have for both of you as as leaders, it's more of a, I guess, a political question, Senator Mitchell is, you know, given some of the institutional roadblocks that exist today to making the Senate work the way it should, whether it has to do with campaign finance or whether it has to do with gerrymandering, can the right kind of leader overcome that? You Again, you seemed to, to me, sitting and watching you, and I just remember hours and hours of you standing there trying something else. If this didn't work, you would you know, you would invite somebody to offer another amendment. You would um, have a quorum call and take a, a recess until somebody could work out something else. But there was never this intent to just kind of, you know, run the other side over uh, like an oncoming train. Can the right kind of leadership, do you think, overcome this? Danny, Senator? Well, it's more difficult now uh, for a variety of reasons, including gerrymandering, which you mentioned, which has been politically enhanced because of technology. And second, the absolute deluge of money into politics, the rise dramatically in the amount of money going into politics and the parallel decline in openness and transparency about who's giving what to whom. The combination has bred deep cynicism among the American people and really severed the basic bond of trust between the public and their elected leaders. But I think, uh, Billy, it's important to have some context. Uh, There never was a time in American history when politics wasn't rough and tumble and difficult and personal. A couple of years ago, a professor at the University of Maine did a piece about the presidential election of 1800. The candidates were men who are icons of our history. Now, John Adams was the incumbent, Thomas Jefferson was the challenger, and the things said about them in that campaign and written were far more harsh than what is being said today. The difference, of course, is there was not the electronic media. It was in print. Very few people read it remote in time and distance from the actual printing. So it's more difficult now, but I still think it can be done. I I would caution against thinking that we should somehow get rid of the parties. Uh, The fact is that our entire system, economic system, education system, sports, every aspect of life is built on the premise that competition produces good results, competition that is fair, conducted under an established and understood set of rules. We wouldn't want a one-party state Uh, that breeds arrogance. It breeds, uh, I think, uh, mistakes in the end. So you want competition. The problem in politics is there is no set of guidelines or rules. It's pretty much open, rough, and tumble. Uh, And so uh, the public at once wants competition, but they also want cooperation. And where the line is and how you draw it essentially depends upon the quality integrity of the leaders who are in place at that time. And so there have been in our national history times when there were leaders of that type. I'm speaking now mainly of presidents. And there were times when there weren't. And so there has been sort of an up and down in terms of this whole difficult and poisonous attitude. I think if we were able to staunch the flow of money. Uh, I I believe the Supreme Court has made grievous errors in a series of cases best summarized as Citizens United uh, in uh, uh, not just creating the problem, which the court didn't, but accelerating it, and in reducing the 
bipartisanship and gerrymandering, those two alone would take, go a long way toward enabling leaders to emerge who could compete fairly and vigorously, who could present alternate visions of the future for our country, but do it in a way that doesn't descend to the level to which it is now descended. Uh, so, Danny, does this conversation make it uh, more likely or less likely that you'll run for office yourself someday? Because <laughs> I know there's, a, there's there's people that would like you to. Yeah, I, I care deeply about the national interest, and, and I love the opportunity to talk about politics. <laughs> Interestingly, the restaurant industry has provided a platform to to do things that matter to me, not necessarily in an international sense, although with Shake Shack being in 12 different countries— we have an opportunity to export a product that, I th- that I'm proud of, of what it says about our country. But no, I don't think so, Billy. Well, talk about some of the, the things that you, that you do get to do that matter to you. Well, I think um, urban development has always been important to me, trying to, to, to use restaurants as a placemaker in neighborhoods that may not have had that type of economic activity. And tell this story. I'm not sure Senator Mitchell knows the history of Union Square Cafe and Union Square and the role that it played, which almost everybody agrees was, you know, pivotal. You well, I, I found that. a confluence between self-interest and the interests of our guests and the interests of the city. And and the reason that there's a confluence of those three things is that if you could make a bet on a neighborhood that had been somewhat down and out and lock in a 15 or 20-year lease at a very, very low rent, uh, you're thereby making a bet on that neighborhood. If you're right about that bet, and you can actually impact the bet by by having a restaurant that people want to come to, and you end up employing people from that area, and then other restaurants come to the area because they say, oh my gosh, it must be really, really good, and then other businesses come there, the, the neighborhood uh, does well. Your guests do well because you're able to pass on you know, some good value to them because instead of putting all your money into the pocket of a landlord in a pre-existing high you know high rent neighborhood you're able you you just win all the way around so we've done that in about five different neighborhoods but it in started New York with City. Union Square Cafe started with Union Square Cafe and we've taken you know I, I think Shake Shack the original Shake Shack in Madison Square Park was the same thing everybody looks at these neighborhoods years later and they say well of course but they forget what they looked like, you know, when the first people went in there. So that's been that's been of interest. And of course, Billy, the gift that you've given me and in, in our entire industry of being able to share our strength literally uh, for the for the purpose of trying to eliminate childhood hunger in America uh, has has been priceless. And our restaurants are involved daily with one hunger relief organization or another. So those have probably been the two biggest ones. But I also think that the the bigger gift that I think Share Our Strength uh, has provided me and, and our industry is, is this. It's that if you are in a position where you're doing well and you have an opportunity to create community wealth uh, by investing in places and in people and in organizations that can lift the whole, and you realize that just like you know, the cliche expression, the rising tide lifts all boats. That's how I define community. What we have in common, which is the root of the word community, are the things that, that I think benefit each one of us. When you take care of your own front yard, it's funny how the neighborhood seems to start to take care of its as well. And uh, 
I love doing that from the platform of, of my business. Um, and it extends in so many different ways. It goes into the agriculture community. When one of our restaurants starts to use products from a farm and then another farm says, I want to do business with them. Well, all of a sudden, you've now expanded way beyond the city in which you do business and, and you find opportunities to lift people uh, wherever you go. Uh, so let's take what you said, which is a kind of a dimension of the American dream, really, and look at it through the lens of immigration. You're the, you're the son of immigrants, I believe, um, and you've talked about it pretty eloquently. And Danny, you're in an industry in which immigration plays such an enormous role. Um, Senator, talk a little bit about um, the, I guess, the, the kind of the common sense that you're trying to bring to the discussion about immigration in our country, and a little bit about your own background. Well, the first point to make is that uh, there's nothing new about discrimination, about stereotyping, about hostility to immigrants. And it's important to establish context. Human beings first appeared on the earth 300,000 years ago, but they spread very slowly around the world. It was not until about 15,000 years ago that they reached what is now North America. So the fact is that everybody in this country <laughs> somewhere came from somewhere else, I mean, at some point in history. It wasn't until about five, well, the, the, the early groups spread and became what we know as the Native Americans across all of North, Central, and South America. The Europeans came about 500 years ago, and for centuries, the British, the French, the Dutch, the Spanish, and the Native Americans fought for control of North America. A series of wars occurred, most of them small local, but ultimately the British prevailed in North America, and then the what were two, the two major colonies ultimately spun off into the United States and Canada. For about 100 years, uh, we had a vast continent. We had only a few million people. Uh, we welcomed people from everywhere to try to fill the vast continent. But it didn't eliminate ad racial stereotyping and attitudes. Every group that's come here has suffered from it. Uh, my father's parents came from Ireland. And we all know from Irish history that all across New York, Philadelphia, Boston, signs were up, Irish need not apply. Cartoons were published showing them the body of an ape with the face of a human, depicting them as subhuman. Italians were stereotyped with the crimes of a few imputed to all of them. No group in America has suffered uh, uh, discrimination longer and more harshly than Jews other than African Americans, who are the only group who were brought here involuntarily in cages and chains and subjected to slavery and discrimination for centuries. And as you know, Danny, Jews were discriminated against until fairly quite recently in our society in, a, in an incredible way. Catholics, we, we think of the Ku Klux Klan because of its violent actions against African Americans in the South in the late 19th century, but the Klan actually reached its peak in the North in the 1920s on a program of virulent anti-Semitism and anti Catholicism. So what's happening now isn't new, but we've been able to overcome it. Each group had some who withstood the hostility, who grabbed the bottom rung of the ladder of success in American life and pulled themselves up and pulled us up along with it. My father was the orphan son of Irish immigrants. He never knew his parents. He was raised in an orphanage, adopted by an elderly childless couple, he had little education. He left school after the third or fourth grade and worked 
ultimately as a janitor at a local college. My mother was an immigrant from Lebanon, born to a Christian family there, and there were periodic uh, religious disputes that led to a great deal of migration to the United States. She found herself uh, living with her sister in a tenement building next door to my father's family in, in a town in Maine, and every, my mother worked 50 years nights in a textile mill. 50 years in a textile mill, 11 o'clock at night till 7 in the morning. My parents were very poor, died penniless, but in their minds they were successful because their children got an education, and thanks to the openness of American society, we have all led lives far beyond my parents' imagination. And so my, my view is, and you have to think about how much our country has benefited from immigration, how, how immigrants have brought new life, new energy, new views. Think about just a couple of facts. In 2016, seven Americans got the Nobel Prize. Six of them were immigrants. Think of uh, the fact that uh, arguably the three most successful businesses and three of the most successful businesses in the world today are Apple, Amazon, and Google. Apple was created by Steve Jobs, whose father was born in Syria. Amazon by Jeff Bezos, whose adoptive father was born in Cuba. And one of the co-founders of Google was Sergey Brin, who himself was born in Russia. And so ask yourself, would we be a better country if they hadn't gotten in? But ask yourself also, what are the chances that if Steve Jobs had lived his life in Syria, he would have created Apple? Or Jeff Bezos in Cuba? Or Sergey Brin in Russia? Genius knows no language, no race, no religion. It can be found wherever there are human beings, but it tends to flourish where there is freedom, opportunity, where anybody can rise despite their background, and that's really America, a place of innovation, and that's what we need, and there's this, this current attitude of imputing to immigrants uh, all the negative stereotypes is absolutely not new. It has existed for 200 years in our country, and some have sought to exploit the differences, as we're seeing now, but ultimately, I think we have overcome every wave of this hostility, and we've emerged a more diverse, larger, stronger, better country. And uh, speaking of Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos and Sergey Brin, um, put in that category your parents, who had a son who became majority leader of the United States Senate, chair of the Walt Disney Company, on the board of the Boston Red Sox. I mean, what is more American than this? And honestly, my parents simply could not have conceived of that uh, uh, given their lives. So I, I believe very deeply in our country. I think that uh, we will get through these latest difficulties. Our institutions are strong. Our democracy is strong. Our country's growing. We have by far the largest economy, by far the largest military we make mistakes. That's one of the strengths of democracy, that the, deba the mistakes are out in the open, they're debated, they're discussed, and we have an enormous capacity for self-correction. And, and I think that we do have better days ahead. A lot of people are despairing now, they're discouraged. I tell my kids they'll live in a country even better than the one that I grew mm. up in. Mm. Danny, talk, give us your lens on the immigration issue in particular, because I know the restaurant industry is, on, on the one hand, it's the first job for many immigrants uh, who it's the entry-level access to the American dream. But, and, and the industry also has to deal with the fact that many of their employees have immigration issues. How do you think about it, and how have you managed it? You know, I think for, for many, many years, we have um, 
we've wanted to abide by the law. So we have self-imposed uh, some some major challenges, probably for a good decade, um, in terms of making sure that people's paperwork is what it's supposed to be. Now that said, while I, I'm very confident that to the degree that there are any illegal immigrants in our organization, that that is a complete outlier and something we are not aware of because of all the safeguards that, that we've imposed for at least a decade. I also can tell you that you're absolutely right. The One of the great things about the restaurant industry is that the bar is very, very low in terms of the skills you need to take an entry-level job. Um, if you have a work ethic and a hospitality heart, we will hire you. I think what our industry needs to work on quite a bit is how do we elevate you from that point? How do we give you the tools? We have uh, uh, just begun uh, to institutionalize something that only one of our restaurants had been doing, uh, which is English for as a second language classes for all of the, the people who come to our company who do not speak uh, English as their native language. And we're doing that not from the spirit of you should speak English uh, if, if you want to be part of our company, but rather if you speak English, the chances are greater that you will be able to advance economically um, in, in your own families. And it's something that, I, that I'm very, very proud of that, that we're doing right now. So look, I, I, I don't think that the restaurant industry is alone in, at this moment in time, the type of jobs that, that um, are available throughout the country, whether you're somebody who picks fruit, whether you're somebody who works in the service industry, whether you're somebody who drives a car, uh, either as a taxi driver or you know for one of the the ride service companies, there are many many industries that have classically welcomed immigrants as a first job uh, as as they progress through this country, and you know I I think that that's going to be a big challenge if we close our doors uh, to to any type of immigration. Senator Mitchell, you're probably the most uh, uh, conversant in this at this table in terms of how do you kind of create the socioeconomic mobility that ultimately gets at some of the inequality that we're dealing with because the inequality has been going in the, the wrong direction. Well, I believe that we have in our country made enormous progress uh, over each generation. Uh, this is a much different and much better country than the one in which I grew up in most respects. In one respect, however, I believe we have not made progress, and that is I think that a child born today in the circumstances that I was born into probably has less chance to rise than I did. Uh, less opportunity, fewer openings. It's a much bigger country, much more difficult. The numbers are much larger, uh, and I think we have to go an extra mile to try to find and help these youngsters to identify those who have the talent, the willingness to work, to succeed in life, and we haven't done a good job at that. The greatness of America lies not just in our economic strength, our military power, both of which are unequal, it's in our ideals. Uh, it is important to remember that you are an American because of your commitment to ideals, not because of your race, your religion, your heritage, or anything else. And among those ideals, uh, sovereignty of the people, the independent judicial system, the primacy of individual liberty, 
is the principle of opportunity for all. We know from our daily lives, the three of us and everybody listening to this show knows that's an aspiration, not a reality. There is not equal opportunity in America for every child. What we must do as a society is to raise our actions to the level of our aspirations. And we've got to do even better and work harder at finding those children and helping them reach to the highest level that they can reach in life, and that will lift all of us up. We, we just came back, Senator, from the border. Uh, I spent a morning in immigration court. Uh, was originally drawn to go down there uh, because of the family separation issue. Uh, but what we learned there was completely separate from the family separation issue. There are 300 unaccompanied minors a week who come over, don't try to sneak into the country, go straight to Border Patrol and ask for asylum. Most of them are not from Mexico. They're from Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador. Uh, end up being detained for an average of 55 days, and they get matched up with a sponsor somewhere and are in our system for a very long time before their legal case uh, is resolved. But uh, sitting in court and seeing these young kids uh, who, in many cases, somebody in their family has hired a guide to bring them to the border, some as young as four, most 11, 12, 13, um, and knowing that, uh, first of all, you know, the wall would have nothing to do with that, right? They're not trying to sneak in. They're just coming to border patrol and surrendering. Um, so it, you know, it just, it made me realize that we've got, when you think about all of these young people coming into the country who are going to need education and health care, you know, we've got to find some ways to deal with that and support them up front, or we're going to be paying 10 times as much later. Yes. Let me make a couple of broad points. First, Danny, I want to say when my mother came to this country, she was 16 years old. She could not read, write, or speak English. And her first job was as a dishwasher in a restaurant in a small town in Maine. And then she uh, was able to get into the textile mills, which were then uh, booming and needed immigrants. And she learned her skill as a textile weaver, which sustained our family, really, for the next half century. Uh, uh, Billy, I think you first have to have some perspective. Uh, no one that I know can rationally argue that we should have open immigration as we had for the first 100 years of our nation's history. It's simply not possible now. And the combination of rapid population growth, changing climate, extensive drought, and corrupt governance unable to meet the needs of their people across wide swaths of Asia, Africa, have led to what will, I think, be one of the great crises of the 21st century, and that is the movement of people across national borders in numbers that are without precedent in human history, other than a brief period after the Second World War, and even that now is going to be exceeded. It's not just we who face this problem. Every European country faces it as the two streams of people from south, moving north from Africa and west from the Middle East are inundating Europe and transforming European politics in an even more dramatic way than has occurred here. So the question is, can we, through fair, free, factual debate in our country, reach an agreement on how to deal 
with this issue in a way that maintains limits on who can come in. We can't just open the doors to anybody. The president and some of his supporters say, well, the Democrats favor open immigration. Nobody favors everybody coming here. The question is, can we adopt a rational system that will be fair, that will be consistent with our national values? Uh, And I believe the answer is yes. It means a willingness of members of the two parties to get together in the legislative process to adopt policies that I, I think we should take into account the skills that people have, but not make it exclusive. I think we should figure out a way to deal with the critical issues of children. My gosh, do we have reached the stage where a, a five, seven, nine-year-old is punished because of improper actions taken by their parents? I mean, it's just, it, it's so offensive, not just to the American spirit, to any sense of human values. And so we have to figure out a reasonable central center course that maintains a continuing flow of immigrants into the country as we have had to the benefit of our society while at the same time imposing realistic limits, seeking out those with particular skills and dealing with the very difficult issue of young people that you've described that exist not just from on our southern border, but exists almost all around the world. Let me ask you, we're going to have to wrap up. This time is going so fast. And I think Danny and I would have created this podcast just to have an hour with you if it didn't exist. But um, it's been fascinating. Um, in terms of the poverty and hunger issues that share our strength focuses on that Danny has been such a big part of in terms of helping us create solutions, uh, what, w- what should we understand about hunger and poverty in the state that you've represented so well in the state of Maine. It's a state that I know just from, because we work in all 50 states, has had some pretty severe challenges when it comes to dealing with both hunger and poverty. Yes, I think it's true around the country. I think the the twin scourges of rural America, uh, not just in Maine, but I think all around the country, are the combined effects of uh, food and nutrition issues for those most in need and the scourge of opioid and other drugs that are tearing apart families and communities all around the country. It, it, it both, each independently is a national crisis. The combined effects of the two, I think, are devastating in many rural communities. Uh, I, I am involved in some hunger and feeding programs in my hometown and and in other parts of our state, but I can say to you, Billy, first, you you published a a report on the decline in child hunger, and I think that's really very good news. And for that, you and all involved, including Danny, ought to be congratulated. But at the same time, it cannot create a sense that the problem has been solved, because it has not. There are still tens of thousands, millions across the country, tens of thousands in my own state, of people who lack access to health care, lack access to regular uh, nutrition, and this includes young people in schools. And we all know one of the miracles of modern science, we're living in an age of scientific discovery that is without precedent in all of history, and it's accelerating, is that we now know that what happens in the first months of a human being's life can have a decisive impact on that 
human beings' capacity for development throughout their lives. And food, nutrition, care in the earliest months and years of life are critical, not just for the value of that individual life, but for the whole contribution to the society in which they will have either contributing or taking from. Well, you know, what that puts the finger on for me, Danny, is an issue that we wrestle with on, at the Share Our Strength boardroom and Share Our Strength leadership, which is everybody's in favor of feeding a child. Uh, but often the most important thing you can do for a child is find a way to help its parents or the adults that are taking care of it. And, and that's where the politics breaks down, as you know. That's where the prejudice comes in and the stereotypes come in. And uh, I think it's, you know, a, a, a big issue, not just for nonprofit organizations like Share Our Strength, but for uh, public policy as well. To You know, it's easy to build a consensus to feed kids. How do you build the consensus to support their parents? Because ultimately, you know, it, particularly in terms of what you were saying, Senator Mitchell, the first thousand days of a child's life, even the first, you know, several months prenatal, uh, you've got to be helping the mom or the dad. Well, the first thing I believe is adequate health care. Way back in 1994, I was very much involved as Senate Majority Leader in the effort to change our health care system. In the process, I visited healthcare facilities all over the country, and I recall clearly visiting a, a, a large general hospital in a city in Florida. I was being taken on a tour uh, of the hospital, and the chief pediatrician, who was a woman, as we went through the children's ward, pointed to a row of incubators along the wall and said, uh, those are our million-dollar babies. I said, well, what does that mean? She said, well, we've, they, all of them were born prematurely, and we've each has now cost more than a million dollars to maintain alive at this time. Knowing I was coming, they'd asked some of the mothers to come in, and I went over and I met with them. Almost all of them were teenagers, minority, lacking in education. And the most striking thing, which is indelible in my mind, I will never forget, that not one of these mothers had seen a doctor at any time between conception and birth. The first time they saw the doctor was at birth. Now, you and Danny and maybe most of the people listening to this podcast, we could not even imagine that for our children or our families. It would be completely beyond our scope of imagination, yet that is the reality of life for thousands of Americans. And we simply have to do better. The, those children's lives begin within their mothers and you have to care for the mothers. The, the esoteric arguments that are made in this country, the punitive arguments about uh, you know, cheats and people who don't deserve it, it's valid to have fair and reasonable rules, but it's also imperative that we understand that we have to provide health care for all of our citizens because that leads to the kind of generational problem that has plagued our country for so long and many other societies. Well, and Danny, your grandfather, Irving Harris, who I think Senator Mitchell knew, was really one of the great pioneers um, in our country and certainly in the business community in terms of investing in children at the earliest age. He was. His investment began when the mother was pregnant. He would tell the story about these babies who had fallen off a cliff and were floating down the river 
and the elders of the town would one by one go try to rescue the baby who was floating down the river until one day one of them said, wait a second, we could try to keep doing this as long as possible, but did anybody ever think about trying to go after the person that keeps throwing these babies into the water? (laughs) And and that's that's where the solution Yeah, that's where the solution has to start. Last thing, Senator, just to go to the other end of childhood, is I just want to hear a word about the Mitchell Institute, which I know plays an important role in Maine in helping students actually have this chance if they aspire to go to college, first of all, to help them have that aspiration and to to get there. And that's another example of your innovation and leadership. While in the Senate, I visited and spoke at the graduation of every single high school in Maine. It took me 12 years because they all graduate on just a couple of weeks. Every single high school. Every single high school in Maine. <laughs> and uh, in the course of that, uh, I saw in the eyes and heard in the voice of thousands of Maine youngsters what had been my experience at that time, insecurity, uh, lack of direction, lack of purpose, uh, a lack of a sense of self-esteem. And I, I decided to set up a program, which has been my, really my life's work since then. We provide a scholarship to a graduate from every high school in Maine every year. Uh, and they're based in part on need and part on academic excellence and community service. Uh, and it's been remarkable. And we have, I believe, the highest graduation rate of any program in the country because we identified early on that the single most important factor for these young people is the lack of self-esteem, the lack of a sense of belonging, so that kids from poor and dysfunctional families withdraw from college at an alarmingly high rate at the first setback because it validates their sense of a lack of self-worth. I think you'll be shocked to learn that only one out of two American youngsters who enters college graduates from college. 50% drop out, and they are disproportionately from low-income families because they lack a sense of self-worth. And the first setback, they pull out, and we, we create a community for them. We, we, we encourage community things. We, I established something, in addition to the scholarship, we established something called the Promise Fund, in which we give any one of our students up to $1,000 in cash whenever they ask for it, because we don't want them to drop out of school if they need a book, if they need something. It's the best investment we ever made. We're turning out terrific kids, and unfortunately, the need is so great, we're just scratching the surface. And, and here's what I say to groups that I meet with and asks for help, is that my goal is to see that every single child in Maine has the chance to go as high and as far as the talent and willingness to work will take them and to get a chance to go to college. Now, I know mathematically I cannot ever achieve that goal, but look at the good we can do if we keep trying to reach an unreachable goal and, and we're having great success. And I, I have to tell you that this is true all over the country. There are millions and millions of young Americans, and somewhere within each of them is a spark of genius. And we have to figure a way to find that spark, to light it, and to get that child off to succeed in life. And it's not just for their lives. It's for the life of our society, our community, and our country. I don't think we can say anything better than that. 
we're going to wrap up here. Danny, anything else? No, I'm ready to drop the mic right now. Yeah. (laughs) Danny, thank you for being on at Passions Third. Thanks for your leadership. Uh, As always, uh, Senator Mitchell, we miss your leadership in the Senate, but we're grateful to have your voice and your leadership uh, in our larger society. And it's just been an honor to have both of you on. I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir.